Sometimes you just have to think big. Like flying cars big. Like building cities under the ocean big. In the United States, we have the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, and they really like to think big. They have this grand challenge where they push the boundaries of technology. Early examples have included multiple challenges around autonomous vehicles, designing human robots to work remotely in dangerous environments with no light or heavy smoke. The most recent challenge is to spur the development of novel physiological features for medical triage, which could help save lives in an emergency. In the middle of the last decade, DARPA had a really crazy idea. What if you could build a machine that could play Capture the Flag at DEFCON 24? Here's Mike Walker, then Cyber Grand Challenge Program Manager, speaking at DEFCON 23, announcing the upcoming finals. So we're here today to talk about bringing autonomy uh, to the sport of hackers to capture the flag. And this talk in a nutshell uh, is that we're going to take this room, knock down those two air walls next year, make it three times as big, install seats, and have a free live event where machines play capture the flag against each other in real time. With sports casting, visualization, imagine a gigantic esports event where all the contestants are machines. And at DEF CON 24 in 2016, DARPA got seven autonomous computer reasoning systems, essentially bots, to play a version of Capture the Flag without any human interaction. They even televised it. Live from the Paris Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, it's the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge final event. After eight hours of play, a winner was chosen. Afterwards, Mike humbly summed up the experience. I am uh, blown away by what just happened. We just had an all-computer hacking tournament. Uh, we computed 96 rounds in a little over eight hours, and uh, everything worked. Mike left DARPA, but he continued to work on really big ideas. In the summer of 2019 or so, a group of aerospace experts got together and wondered how they could take things up a notch. Way up. Beyond the stratosphere up. This would not be a DARPA Grand Challenge. This would be something else. A public-private partnership between the U.S. Air Force Research Lab the U.S. Space Force, and members of the Aerospace Village at DEFCON. Hacking satellites is not new. At Black Hat 2020, which was held a few days before DEFCON 28, and the very first Hackasat competition, James Prever gave a talk called Whispers Among the Stars, a practical look at perpetrating satellite eavesdropping attacks. Eleven years before James gave his 2020 talk, in the summer of 2009, Adam Laurie, who also goes by the name Major Malfunction, gave another talk at Black Hat in which he confessed that he had been hacking satellites since 2000 or so. No. Hackasat team at DEF CON, well, they wanted to go a step further and actively try to control an orbiting satellite. In the very first episode of Aerocode, I talked with Frank Pound and Logan Finch about the origins of Hackasat, a unique capture-the-flag event that involves hacking a satellite in orbit. 
It's not necessary to have heard that first episode, but it does trace the history of the first, second, and third Hackensack competitions. That first year at DEF CON, Hackensack had a miniature physical satellite for every team. And the teams had to control these physical satellites in a room at DEF CON and get them to photograph an image of the moon, which was a photograph on the wall of the room. The next year was similar. It was designed to get the teams used to working with the X, Y, and Z axis of a satellite and learn some basic orbital mechanics as well. The third year, it really complicated things. For Hackasat 3, the team built a digital twin. This is a digital representation of a physical object, in this case, a satellite. This digital twin was the subject of the second episode of Aerocode, when I talked with Logan Finch about what it took to simulate a real spacecraft orbiting the Earth. Now, for Hackasat 4, at DEF CON 31, five teams will attempt to hack a real satellite named Moonlighter, currently orbiting the Earth. So as we count down to DEF CON 31 in August 2023, I'm talking with Mike Walker in order to lay the groundwork for thinking about exploiting vulnerabilities on real satellites and the real challenges this will bring to the five teams playing Hackasat 4. This is the story how one might go about hacking a live satellite and why we need to think defensively about securing satellites today. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Ericode. My name's Mike Walker. Uh, my hacker handle during Hackasat is Cydonia. Um, and you know, my experience, I have um, multiple degrees in aerospace engineering um, from Purdue University. Um, and I have 15 years experience in aerospace and defense, uh, doing modeling and simulation and embedded flight software. Um, and my, my specialty areas kind of revolve around uh, GPS and digital signal processing, like that's where my degrees lie. But I've I've done a bunch of stuff over the years, um, sort of all over the you know the embedded flight software and high fidelity physics modeling realm. Mike works for Cromulence, a company that has deep experience designing capture the flag competitions. For example, some of the members of the company actually designed the competitions behind the DEFCON CTF finals. Uh, yeah, Cromulence is a small business, uh, and our um, our background came out of uh, the legitimate business syndicate that used to run um, DEFCON CTF for several years. Um, and you know now we're uh, a business uh, with about sixty employees, uh, and we do you know full spectrum cybersecurity uh, with expertise in vulnerability research, uh, reverse engineering, and running cyber competitions like Hackasat. In episode one of Aerocode, Frank Pound told us that the Hackasat project came together in the fall of 2019 on an island off the coast of Virginia called Wallops Island. He said there was a momentum for this after DEF CON that year. They were thinking that in the past seven years with the creation of Space Force, SpaceX, and companies starting to really get into a rhythm of launching lots of satellites into space, now was the time to begin talking about hacking satellites in orbit. I think the main goal, you know, and I, I think the, the U.S. government has said this a lot, um, but, but, you know, I would say the main goal is to, to get 
the satellite community and the cybersecurity community working together and to start thinking about this problem because it's it's definitely a problem that exists. Um, a lot of the assumptions that you make when designing a satellite might not come with security in mind first. Um, and I, I do think that goal has been achieved. You know, if you look at these teams, uh, especially at the top level teams, you've got people with very, very strong cybersecurity backgrounds working with people with physics and astrophysics PhDs and, you know, who work in designing control systems or flight software. Um, so that's really, you know, in my mind, the goal is to just sort of bring these two communities together and have people start thinking about how, you know, how cybersecurity affects satellites um, and how we can make them better and uh, safer and, you know, less vulnerable to attack. For Hackasat 1, I honestly thought they were hacking a decommissioned satellite in orbit. That wasn't the case at all. But getting a satellite for the game of Capture the Flag into orbit, what does that involve? I mean, are you sharing somebody else's satellite? Are you your own satellite? So we are our own satellite. Moonlighter is a, is a whole satellite. Um, but as you can imagine, like it's not, it's not very big. It's a small satellite. Moonlighter is what's called a CubeSat. And to be specific, it's a 3U CubeSat. CubeSats are designed in units of size, usually 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. That would be a 1U. So a 3U would be 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters. And you don't waste a whole rocket on one small satellite, right? So small satellites go up in big batches. And I think we're on an International Space Station resupply mission. Uh, so, you know, we're going to go up on our rocket with a bunch of other stuff, uh, stuff for the ISS and probably other small satellites. And in fact, that's what happened on June 5th, 2023. Moonlighter rode aboard a resupply mission for the International Space Station. Internal power. Also, Falcon 9 uh, computers will then enter startup mode, which is when the Falcon 9 flight computers take control of the countdown guiding the rocket through the last seconds before liftoff. You should hear a call out about startup shortly. Falcon 9 is in startup. Dragon is in countdown. Both stages are now pressurizing for launch. At T-minus 45 seconds, we'll hear the SpaceX launch director verify go for launch. Go for launch. There you go. And at launch, the International Space Station will be flying 260 miles over the North Atlantic, south of St. John's, Newfoundland. T minus 30 seconds. 15 seconds. Minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, ignition, engine full power, and liftoff of CRS-28. Go Falcon, go Dragon. Liftoff of about 7,000 pounds of science and cargo, including a new pair of solar arrays to boost power Uh, and then they're gonna, you know, they're gonna release us from an orbit somewhere around the ISS uh, when they when they get to it, right? You know, we can't just say like, 
hey, go release us at this time because they're doing way more important stuff, right? So whenever they get to releasing us, they're going to release us. Um, and the orbit, you know, uh, the orbit parameters of the International Space Station and rockets around it change over time. So we're going to get sort of what we get at that point. And since we don't have a, a rocket engine on our satellite to, you know, do orbit adjustments, we basically just have to live, uh, live with what we get. Um, so, you know, we got to choose, you know, we want to be, you know, we wanted to pay to be on this, this launch vehicle. And they were like, well, we can kind of put you, you know, we can guarantee you'll be like at an orbit of around this altitude, you know, similar to something like the ISS. Um, but, you know, some of the other orbital parameters like right, right ascension, um, and, uh, the argument of perigee, like we don't have a lot of control over that. Those change over time for the ISS. So we're just going to get what we get when they release us. Um, and what's nice about this year's game is while we'll tell teams, like, here's what the satellite is, um, satellite orbits are actually published uh, by NORAD uh, using two line elements. So they can go just look up uh, the publicly available two line element for moonlighter once it's on orbit and they'll know they'll be able to pull it you know from the internet uh in real time we'll obviously provide it to them but they we won't actually need to if we don't you know if they can just go get it according to hackasat's own website moonlighter is the world's first and only hacking sandbox in space designed and launched to advance the understanding of cybersecurity for space systems it will serve a critical role in exercising defensive cyber operations, developing cyber tactics, techniques, and procedures, and verifying end-to-end -end cyber threat assessment and prevention across space enterprise. And that's all well and good, but, you know, it's not easy to transition a hacker from hacking a server across the room to hacking a satellite in orbit. Mike can explain some of the differences. Yeah, so you know, on a traditional system, when you're attacking it, once you get root, you sort of have control. Uh, you've exploited a vulnerability, and now you can do whatever you want, especially if you have root. Um, but a satellite is what we call a cyber physical system uh, or a CPS. And when you're attacking a CPS, getting root, you know, that just means that you now have access to do stuff. So how do you turn? this access you've given yourself root or you know control of the message broker or something into an observable effect um and we saw that during hackasat 3 uh, we didn't give teams the ability to get root but we gave them a vulnerability they could exploit um by attacking the attitude determination control system and they used that to create an observable effect which was spinning the satellite out of control um maximizing the momentum in its in its reaction control wheels um, and then eventually crashing the flight processor. So that's an observable effect that they used a vulnerability to to get. And that's sort of what I mean when I say root isn't enough. Like you want to use this privilege escalation or this vulnerability you found to create observable negative effects. Um, and that's how you attack a cyber physical system like a satellite. So I have to wonder if there's something to be said for people that can see and think spatially. I mean, I can see things and model them 3D in my brain. But other people are like, no, it's flat. I don't see what you're seeing. Is there anything to that? I mean, that definitely helps, you know, to understand the, like the orientation dynamics of the satellite. But what I really think is helpful is just being a good problem solver, right? A lot of the skills still 
apply. You know, in a CTF, in a regular CTF, you have to you get this code and you need to reverse it and you need to find a vulnerability and how you know how you can use it uh, to your advantage. And and really dealing with a satellite is the same way, right? If there's something going wrong, you need to look at your telemetry, you need to look at your flight software, figure out why it's not working and what you can do, right? So if you you know if we take a step back and generalize it, it's the same skill set in terms of problem solving. So if you're a good problem solver and you like to learn, uh, then I think you can you could pick up the jargon and the math that you need to understand problems in space uh, and, uh, and and apply your, your problem solving skills to them. And really, that's, in my opinion, what being a good you know engineer or analyst is is all about, right? It's just about prob- being a good problem solver, being good at learning, uh, being able to think on your feet. And those are the skills that I think really, you know, in my opinion, make you good at being play, playing CTFs, but also make you good at playing a space CTF. So given that Hackasat 4 is modeled off of real satellite software, I have to wonder if maybe the developer of some of those software programs were like, well, nobody's ever going to hack the satellite, so we really don't need to harden this, and we don't need to harden that. I mean, I think it depends on the developer. You know, I, I'm sure the commercial industry and, you know, NASA are concerned about that. Um, but most communication is encrypted, um, you know, not all, but, but most. Um, so I think a lot of people rely on encryption just like we do, uh, over the internet, right? You know, we, we assume that encryption is going to work, um, and that it's implemented properly. And when it doesn't, um, everybody scrambles to patch it, right? So I'd imagine, you know, the same thing is going on in the satellite industry. A lot of people are probably relying on their encryption. Or relying on the fact that you know their ground station, you know, is the only one that knows all the parameters to talk to their satellite, um, and that assumption is pretty good for the most part. But you know, that doesn't mean that it's perfect. If you crippled a ground station, you could remove, uh, you know, one contact, uh, and that might be effective. Um, you know, I think in the real world, what you're seeing is well, like what happened, you know, with with um, the attack last year against a ground network. You know, we've seen recently, um, you know, with the geopolitical strife in the world, we've seen foreign actors exploit um, a satellite internet company. uh, And they didn't do it by exploiting the satellite. They did it by exploiting the ground network, but they still, uh, they still took out service to a bunch of providers. So Mike's talking about the hack of the Viasat KSATs in February of 2022. Last month, a cyber assault on Viasat's satellite internet network disrupted service for users in Ukraine using household modems. The US-based telecom business stated in a blog post on Wednesday that the hack only affected European clients, including thousands in Ukraine. It described the assault on its CarSat network, which happened on February 24th, as multifaceted and purposeful. Ironically, the most visible KSAT damage was to the wind farms in Germany. And while this was a satellite interconnection attack, the attack focused on creating a denial of service on the modems. I mean, I'm not an expert on what happened, but um, it was a ground-based attack, but they didn't go after like the antenna, right? They went after the network. So, um, you know, I think it's just like a lot of systems, right? You make certain assumptions, you assume that those you know, you just assume those are going to work. And when they don't, uh, that's where 
that's where vulnerability research lies, right? One of the reasons satellite hacking has been so elusive is that it's not like hacking the server across the room. A server, well, it's usually physically fixed. Like, you can walk up to it, you can do things to it physically. You have access. And if not, you can gain virtual access to it 24-7. It's not the case with a satellite. With satellite, not only are they in orbit, they're moving around the Earth. And that means that if you want your own ground station, well, then you're going to have long periods of time when you will not have contact with the satellite. So I'm wondering... How long of a contact window are we really talking about here? So it depends on the orbit of the satellite, right? If you think of a, sat- uh, a big communication satellite, um, like the kind the government uses, uh, those are usually in geostationary orbit, and those are over the same spot on the Earth at all times. So if you're in geostationary orbit, it's all the time. As you go down uh, in orbit, lower orbits, the satellite gets faster. That's how orbit mechanics works. Uh, and your, your time that you get get over a specific ground site gets smaller. Uh, So at the altitudes we're at, we're probably looking between five and 13 minutes. Uh, And one of our colleagues at the Aerospace Corporation, he calls it 10 minutes of terror. Uh, Because you've got, you know, it's coming, you have to be ready, and then you've got 10 minutes to do everything, and then it's gone. Uh, So, you know, a big part of this game will be dealing with the 10 minutes of terror um, and being ready for the next pass and having everything you want to upload ready to ready to go. Right. So this is actually a two-way street. Data going up and data coming back down. Not only do you have the opportunity to upload, but you also have the opportunity for the satellite to download as well. All within that 10 to 15 minute window. Absolutely. Right. So um, you may be doing tasks while you're out of view. Uh, As a matter of fact, you almost certainly will be. Um, And that creates a lot of telemetry that you might care to download and have access to. Um, so that's a big challenge for the players is to know what they they need to get down. The other big difference for the admins in Hackasat 4 is that they too are physically constrained in how they can interact with the Moonlighter satellite. It's also a big challenge for us, uh, the administrators. You know, in the past, uh, Hackasat 1, 2, and 3, we either had access to uh, a real piece of hardware that we could just walk up to. Uh, or last year it was a digital twin, but you know we kind of could cheat. We had, uh, like in a video game, we had God mode. Uh, we could just access any data whenever we wanted. We could shell in, you know, to to the flight processor and see what was going on. We won't have that in um, in Hackasat Four, right? We'll have the same physics constraints that the players do. Um, so it's a challenge for the players those access windows. It's also a challenge for us as administrators because we won't know what happened right away right we'll go through that upload download cycle we'll pull down all the data we can and upload the next set of commands and then we'll we'll have to deal with like figuring out what happened because everyone will probably be like well why didn't we get you know our points or why did this team get points and we'll have to go we'll just have you know a whole blackout window of telemetry that we need to go analyze so it'll definitely be be interesting from both the player and an administrative uh, perspective and Mike, with his experience from the Cyber Grand Challenge, he's used to scenarios where the data has to be analyzed first before the leaderboard can be updated, points given or not. The actual game for Hackasat, it hasn't been announced. And at the time of this interview, they were still working on it. But there needs to be some knowledge of the ground systems as well when you're playing the game. That contact window, that's per ground station. 
So there may be multiple ground stations. So teams and admins will have multiple opportunities to be in contact with Moonlighter. Absolutely. So that's something that, you know, before Hackasat 3, we told the teams like, here are where the ground stations are. Um, and here's what the orbits will be. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll be doing something similar before this year's game. Um, and then we'll tell them where the ground stations are. Uh, so, um, you know, it would be pretty hard if we didn't do that. That wouldn't, wouldn't be very much fun. Uh, but yeah, that, that'll be a real limiting factor for us is what ground stations we get really limit how we can play the game, right? You know, we're not going to have 100 ground stations. It's going to be much less than, much, much less than that. So maybe the low-hanging fruit in the game might be to go after the ground station and try to cripple the ground station in some way. I guess that wouldn't be successful because the satellite would just move on to the next ground station and the one after that. You know, you could do that. Uh, you know, if you could get, you know, take over and deny access to a ground station, that would be very effective. And we had something like that in last year's game. It wasn't denying access, but you could win ground station access by completing challenges. Uh, so you could get more time with your satellite uh, by winning, winning ground station, uh, you know, time. Right. So it seems like I said, an attack on the ground station wouldn't necessarily be successful because there's always another ground station. However, if you uploaded something from a ground station to disable the satellite, well, that too could be changed at the next ground station or the one after that. You can imagine in the future with things like Starlink, right? Um, if your satellite can connect to Starlink, I mean, you'll have so many, it, it won't just be ground stations, there'll be other satellites, right? So when you start talking about inter-satellite communication, it gets even more uh, complex and the effects of taking out like one transmitter become less um, prevalent. Oh man. So with a ribbon of CANSATs, each with inter-satellite communications, you could eliminate the 10 minutes of terror. You could have near constant contact with a target satellite. As the target satellite moves around the Earth, the inter-satellite communications would keep the attacker on Earth in constant communication with its target. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we don't we don't have a Starlink terminal on our satellite or on the ground. Um, but you know, that's how that's how Starlink works, right? Those satellites all talk to each other, um, and that's how they transmit data all over the place, right? They're doing inter-satellite communication. Uh, and you can imagine, you know, if, if SpaceX ever chose to make this feature available, they could let you connect to one of their Starlink satellites um, via radio or something. And, you know, you could have a space-to-space -space link to Starlink, and then you could, it would really change the game, right? You would, you would just need access to the rest of Starlink, not just to your satellite. The the whole physics problem would change drastically very quickly. So if we've eliminated the 10 minutes of terror and we have constant communication with our target, there still remains another matter, physics. Unlike hacking a server across the world, with fiber optic, that's one thing. But to go up to a satellite and then come back down again, maybe once, maybe twice on the journey, it, it, it's actually really interesting when we start talking about like interfacing with a satellite and what things affect us. Um, you know, we've already talked about, you know, we don't get permanent access to the satellite. You know, we're, we're bounded by contact windows, but all the, all the other things that normally you think about in a network apply to, 
What's interesting is that the latency isn't super bad. Yeah, the latency, it's not super bad. I looked it up. If you think about it, it's just radio waves propagating at the speed of light, which is three times 10 to the eighth meters per second, which translates to about three milliseconds per thousand kilometers. So for example, the sun, it's 152 million kilometers away. Sunlight then takes eight minutes to get to the earth. Well, the ISS, it's only 400 kilometers. And according to NASA, data exchange with the ISS has a transmission latency of about a half a second. What really can kill you in some cases for latency is your ground station might be like in Madagascar and you're in LA. So if you think about, we have to hop across the internet all the way to Madagascar, then go up to the satellite, come back down and then hop all the way back to the United States. Um, It's worse if you're somewhere like Antarctica because there's no uh, underwater cables that go to Antarctica. So if you're like a science satellite that's communicating with one of the poles, you're actually going to communicate down. That ground station is going to communicate back up to another satellite uh, that's in a better orbit. Then it's going to go down to some ground station and then you're going to hop across the internet back to you. So there's this whole game of like how you get there. And the data rates? Well, they're not exactly robust. We're in like the 2020s, right? And data rates are great, you know, gigabit Ethernet for everybody. Um, And when you start talking to a small set, there are satellites that talk really fast. But when you're talking to a small satellite with a, you know, a a radio like Moonlighters, uh, it's like going back to 1992, Uh, you know, data rates in the, you know, kilobits per second. Uh, not in the meg, you know, megabits or gigabits per second. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sure you remember, right? The internet used to be slow and it was terrible and it was very frustrating. Uh, and talking to a satellite can be a lot like that. You need to be prepared to deal with it and be judicious about the data you send up and pull back down. So purely speculative here, but if you could upload malware to one of the Starlinks, it would infect, say, the whole network. Well, that's an inter- that's an interesting thought. Like that is a a worry with inter-satellite communication is you could spread things to a lot of satellites. Uh, but if we were talking about, it probably wouldn't work that way if you were a user of something like, you know, some sort of inter-satellite network. Like you would just connect via this inter-satellite network at any time to your satellite, the satellite you were interested in. Um, and then you will, you know, you might put malware on that. You know, I doubt uh, that space communications networks allow user data to like save on their on their satellite, right? You could think of they're just acting as like a a network of data hoses, right? Um, and they, I would assume that they're isolating their the user's data extremely uh, extremely well to prevent anything like that from happening. Um, and the people who work for companies like that are very very smart, so. Um, but you know, you could use that at any time, right? Like if your satellite was connected to Starlink, you wouldn't need to wait for a pass, right? You could just connect, you know, you could just start trying to connect to it normally via Starlink. And, you know, as long as you had to have a Starlink satellite, you could get all the way to the, the target satellite. So what do you think could really mess up a satellite in orbit? You know, w- what's interesting is what you can, what you can do to a satellite, right? You can, create a physical effect on the satellite. You can make a point somewhere else. You can turn off its sensors or its actuators. 
Um, but you know, just like you can deny access to a computer, there are all kinds of ways you could deny access to a satellite, whether it's from the ground station or from the satellite itself. I mean, you could imagine if you if you were able to change the encryption keys on a satellite, uh, it could be game over, right? So it's really important to just think about when you're thinking about cybersecurity how you how you prevent you know a denial of service attack like that where you know somebody just locks you out of these assets um, and you know for a, a small cheap satellite like the one we're using for Hackasat you know you might say well it's not that expensive it's not that big of a deal but there are big satellites out there that are worth billions of dollars and have 30 year service lives um, and you know you can bet that everybody involved is is uh, you know very uh, you know very aware of how to you know how to protect these assets from uh, from from being taken offline. Okay, so one way to knock a satellite out of service is to take its encryption keys. But there's a more physical element, like you could direct the antenna to go off the earth entirely. You could just point it in the wrong direction, right? You know, if you think of a GPS satellite, all the the antenna that broadcasts navigation signals pointed at the earth. If you flipped it around, uh, it would basically be non-performant, um, and that would be annoying. You know, you'd have to go fix that. Wait. Moonlighter is 400 kilometers over the Earth. How are you going to go fix that? How? Well, I mean, it depends, right? If all you did was turn it around, then somebody would just notice and reissue a command to reorient the satellite, right? Um, but if you if you combined a physical attack like that with some more denial, it could be very scary, right? Uh, so the main antennas, they're not the only way a satellite can communicate. Yeah, and a lot of times, if you think about a satellite, right, uh, communicating, um, you don't want to, you don't want to have a satellite that you can't communicate with if it's spinning, because sometimes you know you might lose contact with it and it might start spinning for some reason. Um, so you know, often you'll pretty much always you'll design a satellite so it's at least one method of communication is is omnidirectional. Uh, so that, you know, if your satellite is just well, out of control, you can still reach it, right? Because it would be, it's a pretty, pretty big assumption that like, you're always going to have positive control of your satellite and your main communication method will always be pointed at you. So those sort of like command and control communication systems you can assume are going to be omnidirectional, um, but like high, you know, high power, high data rate downlink uh, might not be right, or um, you know, there's a lot of stuff with communications recently around uh, laser communications, and those require very, you know, very fine precision pointing uh, to get good data rates. Um, so to do that, you know, you need to be pointing correctly. But the the basic command and control will still always be omnidirectional for safety reasons. Okay, so you could just upload a new command. But I mean, still, that would be a a big disruption, even if that's all you did, right? That's a big disruption in operations, right? It's easy, it's easy to be disruptive in space when when all these physics are are in play. Yeah, and it will be like like I said, right? We're gonna go up, and then we're gonna wait, and then we're gonna do commissioning, and then we're gonna test the game, and then we're gonna play the game, and it's all gonna be very, uh, very fast. <laughs> So we haven't really talked about what's needed to be successful at Hack of Stack 4. We have a satellite in orbit. 
we have a basic understanding of some of the orbital dynamics that will affect gameplay. What then do the five qualifying teams need to do in order to be successful? Well, we'll find out in the next episode of Ericode when my conversation with Mike Walker will continue. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. I have new shows coming up, including one that will take you behind the scenes on the Hackasat game at DEF CON 31, where they'll be hacking a real satellite in orbit. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out.